when contemplating unity consciousness, it becomes evident that unity consciousness is derived from the same root, which means that we all share the same root, no matter where on the planet we're from or what religion we practice. And the clue is in the language and in the mythologies, the commonalities between the stories that we tell and the commonalities in the language and the words that we use to describe basic things. Today's guest is Chance Garten. He's back again from Interverse Podcast to have an incredible deep dive conversation with us all about the roots of religion. Join us to find out more. Soul Nectar Show, the Soul Nectar Show. You're invited, delighted to discover who you are. Anything is possible if you believe. So join us on this beautiful journey. Well, hello and welcome everybody to another episode of Soul Nectar Show, that show where we talk about all things essence, where we gather around the campfire and we share our stories of connection to that which is greater than us, to the big mystery beyond the veil, to those synchronistic moments that lead us inexorably to a deeper understanding of ourselves. I'm your host, Carrie Hummingbird, and I'm really delighted to be back here again today to have another rabbit hole, down the rabbit hole conversation with my friend, Chance Garten. Welcome, Chance. How are you doing? Really good to be here. Thanks for inviting me back. This is Chance's third time on the show. Chance and I always have these really great conversations, and that just shows you how much I love the conversations that we have. And I know you guys love them too, because Chance has been like on the top 10 many times and uh, on the podcast. So back again, and reminder, in case this is the first time you're ever tuning into Soul Nectar Show and you never heard of me before, and you're like, who, what? I don't understand. Chance is the host of the Interverse podcast, and I've been over in his podcast talking about my various stuff, and he's been over here. He's a sound healer, and he is an intrepid explorer of all things spiritual. All things spiritual. So that's one of the reasons why I love it. And today we're going to be talking about the kind of underpinnings of all that, right, Chance? Like we're going to talk about the underpinnings of all things spiritual. So one of the things I just want to let everybody know is in the show notes is going to be a link to the other two episodes with Chance. So if you wanted to go hear Chance's whole story, which is a very intriguing, interesting story, go check out the other episodes. Episode one and episode two, they dive more into like, Episode one's more like Chance's life experience up until then and and how we got on the path. And then episode two is more about the sound healing stuff and how he started getting into the sound healing. And that was a really fascinating episode too. So episode three, we're going to talk about cool stuff about the symbolism and language and how it reveals that there's actually an ancient culture that seeded all of these mythologies and religions. So tell us more, Chance, because I'm really excited about what you got to share with us. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually, if it's cool with you, I'd like to set the tone with some tone. So let me just hit hit the instrument real quick. Just some nice coherent sound. Deep breath. I would let it just ring out, but it would take several minutes. 
This is my favorite instrument right here, though. Yeah, absolutely true. What you just said. I'm a sound healer. I'm a podcast host. I'm an explorer of the mysteries. I do hope people go back if they hadn't heard it yet. Catch the episode where we talk about the tuning that I do for people's auras. I sometimes jokingly call myself an aura mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> I can actually see you in that. I'm an aura mechanic. Come pull up to my aura station and I will see you up. <laughs> yeah, that, that stuff is fascinating and it's so effective and uh, miraculous and magical. I've got a lot more experience under my belt since the last time we talked about it, which is cool. I just really enjoy it. never ceases to amaze me how we can have the experience of connection, even remotely, proving that distance and separation are more mental concepts than some kind of physical hard and fast reality. But yeah, what you mentioned is about the underpinnings of all things spiritual. I am very, very fascinated in what you might call the field of syncretism which is demonstrating through language. Philology would be a good term to have in your back pocket. That is the study of how languages evolved. And it actually is kind of like um, the love of language, the word philology, which is definitely true for me. I love language. You can find, you know, where, where history fails or has been rewritten, <laughs> usually the latter, you can find the seeds and the keys of the fingerprints, if you will, of the ancient worldwide civilization, or at the very least, a seafaring priest and merchant class that brought different ideas throughout the world, you can find their fingerprints in the language. And language is going to be your number one key to seeing how we're actually all way more similar than we are different. And sometimes that ruffles some feathers. Some people have a sense of my tradition is the special one. And you can't tell me that <laughs> my particular brand of, of spirituality is the same as somebody else's. That, that hurts my feelings. But, you know, I'm not here to discount the uniqueness of various cultures as they took the seeds of this mythological system and ran with it in their own region, with their own flavor, with their own morality. All of that is 100% valid, and there is a lot of uniqueness there. So... You know, I'm not sure exactly where the conversation is going to take us in terms of how we might lay out some of these syncretic, symbolic proofs that there's really some kind of hidden, in my opinion, on purpose, hidden ancient universal uh, culture cedars. But we'll get into it. <laughs> yeah, you know, what's so interesting is I'm kind of ready for this conversation because I've been reading The Way of the Shaman, and he talks about, I guess, Michael Harmon. He talks about how shamanism is like the oldest spiritual religious healing modality on the planet, arguably millions of years when people didn't have all these logic-based ways of healing like Western medicine. They had to turn to their spirituality and their medicine person to help them heal, you know, and, and figure out like what plants might heal them or what what energy might be trapped or what spirit might be upset, you know, whatever their explanations were. But they had to go and look within the natural world to find the answer. You know, they didn't have like an MD down the street that they could book an appointment. They had to actually go within themselves and go within nature and, and go within the what they found in nature to help support people to, to live and survive. And that's kind of why we're still here today is because of all of that shamanism. Yeah. And so here's an example of philology and how having a bit of knowledge of 
the way languages shift and the way words are pronounced differently in different places can clue you in a little bit to what a word might mean on a deeper level. So shaman, right? You really have two syllables there. And the first one, sham, is basically identical to one of the, I believe, Arabic names for the sun, which would be, uh, you could pronounce sham or sam or scam or scam. And it's where you get names like in the Old Testament, the biblical hero, Samson. And you have, after that, you have on or an. So an, A-N, or on, O-N, word that can refer to the sun, as it was called in Heliopolis, on, which is ancient Egypt, where you have an, which refers to the year. And the sun is what marks out the year for most cultures. So one of the things that is important to know is the universality of solar symbolism in many, many different cultures. And so uh, one thing that people interpret shaman as meaning is like the ones with fire. And that makes sense because the that same word sham or sam is referring to fire as much as it is the sun. Obviously, the sun is the the big ball of fire <laughs> in the sky. So yeah, I just really like how you can get into words like that and see how do a few switches sometimes as well. Like some places would pronounce a, the letter S like S and some people would pronounce it like a shush sound. So you can play with words like that and do a little bit of alteration to sort of see what are some spinoff words from this one word and what do those tell me about? So you know, Samson is a particularly interesting <laughs> biblical hero. He has uh, many fascinating exploits. Like, you know, an example of how he's a solar symbol would be that he is weakened by his hair being cut and the hair of the sun would be the rays and how bright and how far the rays stretch out. So in the height of the sun's power in the summer, his hair is long, then his hair is cut and he's weakened. That's when the sun gets dimmer and weaker in the sky during the winter season. And why does so much of this come back to the solar symbolism? Well, it's because you really need to know where the sun is at in its cycle if you're going to be responsible for things like agriculture and not starve when the winter comes, right? And of course, one of the other aspects of all symbolism is that it's multivalent, or you can say multidimensional. There's more than one particular read or meaning but generally, you can always bring things back to what you'd call astrotheology, which is the scripture of the stars. And that's actually what I think is the most helpful building block for anybody to understand any mythological or religious system is that it does come back to the zodiac, the sun's path through the zodiac in the course of a year, and how it's demonstrable that the various characters and archetypes that play out in mythological systems are referring to that journey, you know, throughout the year. And the characters that you meet are going to refer to the zodiacal signs or other constellations in the night sky. So one of the things about this topic that makes it a little hard to talk about without, you know, like an outline in preparation is that there's so much information and so much, so many small details that it might sound like some of the things are a stretch at first, but whenever you start delving into the minutiae, you find that you're overwhelmed by mountains of evidence to support the idea that astrotheology is at the basis of all the symbolism systems of the world. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. And actually, I like to put myself back in time to the mindset, the potential mentality of the people who came up with our wisdom traditions. And 
you know, that in itself is a bit of a brain bender. <laughs> to, like, how did anybody come up with some of these symbolic systems that are so widely applicable to everything in the human experience and everything that nature expresses and also put it into codify it into the names of constellations and stars so that the information would never actually be lost. I find that quite remarkable. And uh, it's an impressive technology, to say the least. Well, we're still using astrology today to explain things. And I mean, just explaining your own life journey is really doable through astrology. The experience of a second Saturn returns is pretty commonly held among all people. They go through that similar set of patterns, right? And I'm also thinking about the larger era that we've been in, the Piscean age, right? We've been in this Piscean age that came with certain mythical characters and certain religious ideas that now as we move into the uh, Aquarian age, things are very different. It's a different energetic that's opening up. So it's going to be a different kind of relationship to religion, right? To spirituality kind of opening up now. It's not the same. And there's this friction point between the two sort of points of view, so to speak, on the planet. And it's like, okay, let's move out of literalism and into like mysticism, Because the mystical arts is what's really opening up now with the age of Aquarius. Not quite so much of that that literal idea about like things historically happened exactly this way. Looking at these texts, these, um, these religious texts more through that lens of like, what was it trying to express in terms of symbology rather than what was it trying to like historically tell me happened? Yeah, and, and um, maybe unpopular opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely but, a very unpopular opinion, I'm sure. Go ahead. <laughs> well, my unpopular opinion is that, well, I have a couple. <laughs> <laughs> I have a few of them too. First of all, part of why I like to delve into showing the similarity of all the different systems around the world from Buddhism, Christianity, Norse mythology, the South American mythoses, et cetera, is that there has been obviously a a boot on the neck of humankind in some respects for quite a while. And where did that come from? Who is doing it? <laughs> like who's exploiting uh, the knowledge differential of things like the mystic arts in a way that allows for systems of slavery or manipulation to easily continue that. And, you know, I'm not out here to say anybody's a victim of one thing or another, but that there is obviously this power differential in the form of knowledge that's wielded in a way that is not beneficial to mankind. And so part of why I like to get into the syncretism is to dispel the supernaturalism in a way that's un- like unhealthy or unfounded type of supernaturalism. And unfortunately, the New Age is a very powerful example of that in for many people. So my point in saying that is, A, the priest class that set all this up, maybe in its original form, in its pure form, and and in incarnations of it throughout time haven't always been evil. But I do think that 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 class of uh, being is the one that wound up creating these lopsided systems, what you call monasticism or the feudal system that has still got legs. It's actually still running right now, but it's in a more obscured form, kind of in a new and improved, updated version. So it's not to blame priests for everything, but the in the ancient world, the priests were the kings. The king was the top priest or he was under the thumb of the priest class. And 
I think in every grouping of human beings, there's going to be those with good intentions and bad intentions. So I don't want to throw everything under the bus, spiritually speaking, but it helps to demystify the overall sort of, I don't know, pizzazz of, <laughs> of religion to take it out of the literal. And that's what the, that's what the systems have been doing is making people believe in literal historical characters that are really more mythological and astrotheological in a way that then creates all this divisiveness of like, my guy is the savior, your guy is the, the bad man, you know, and all of that. And so about the age of Aquarius, you know, one of the things I've learned in my study of the ancients and the way that they reckon the year is, and the larger cycles in particular, is that <laughs> the thing I keep running into most consistently is that they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> about, they're wrong about their astronomical calculations or observations. They're they're wrong about what they reckon as the the larger cycles. And, you know, overall, I think not that we should put no stock or faith in astrology. I do quite a bit, like to cover astrology all the time on my show. But we also have to be open to like what's not accurate about this or what doesn't reflect in nature. The age of Aquarius is an interesting one because my best reckoning of it would be that it actually already kicked off in about oh, yeah. the late the late 1700s, actually. Mm. That in terms of when the, the solar year hit the processional age of, of Aquarius would have been way back then. Now, whether or not that's true, or like the, the big question is like, how do you decide like what time of day do you measure at? Like, or what time in the morning do you measure at to know what sign the sun is in? That's all super up in the air. And why I'm bringing a little bit of, of dispute to the idea not saying that I know what age it is or any of that, but the issue that is constantly coming up with the uh, would-be masters and controllers is this idea of utopianism. And that would mean that the golden age is just around the corner. The, the magical time of everything is perfect and everyone's happy and you don't have to do anything to fix your, your situation for yourself. Just around the corner. Just hang on, guys. Just trust the plan, whatever the version of it is, you know. And so the age of Aquarius, I think, has really been leveraged in a similar way where people kind of put their personal responsibility aside and say, hey, we have uh, this new age is coming. This new age is coming and everything's going to be all good, all good. And we don't have to do anything to fix ourselves. You go back to like every previous age of humanity and they have their own version of that. And even in the secular sense, humanity's got that going right now in the form of like how scientism is constantly promising that there's a utopia, a scientific technological society that is a utopia that's just around the corner. Just hang on guys. We just got to get through these rough years, but you know, it, it never really pans out that way. So I think we're kind of in an eternal now where the, the forces that, you know, the yin and yang forces or the good and evil forces, however you want to put it, you know, there's always this balance between them. There's an, uh, utopia in terms of etymology means no place, <laughs> it means no place. <laughs> Which is now. I mean, yeah. So that's really fascinating. I think it's interesting how people interpret information, right? There's lots of books out there, scientific books about the people that are tracking how the planet's doing, right? How things are going. And their, their estimation is, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, like we need to do something real quick to course correct on the planet, like in the next 
in this generation, like right now, everybody right now needs to do something to course correct. Like we need to course correct where we're going on the planet. We can't keep sustainably doing what we're doing. And there's a lot of people that are invested in that course correction, right? That are actually taking action to do that, which is wonderful. But a big part of that course correction, because this is mostly energetic and not so much physical, like it's how much percent is it physical and like the rest of the cell is energetic. So because this is mostly energetic, doing your personal work actually is the work. So I think it's interesting what you're saying is like some people went, oh, you know, maybe some people thought that the day of reckoning is coming. And then since they've been such really good Christians, they're going to be saved. And so they don't have to do anything. And they just keep just hang out until Jesus comes. Meanwhile, the day of reckoning (laughs) is coming. It's called Easter. It's about to be here. It's when the Savior comes. <laughs> you know, the Son is reborn, the Son of God. And we the reckoning of the year happens in the vernal equinox time in the ancient world. And that is the return of Christ, the return of Jesus. It happens every year. It's called the year of our Lord. Yeah. So basically, though, if we don't work on ourselves, what happens? Like if we just, if we go to church on Sunday and we sit there and we listen and then we go, that's really cool. And then we leave and go home and the rest of the week, we're pretty much not doing our work, right? We're not working on forgiveness. We're not working on compassion. We're not really doing much of anything. And we come back on Sunday, we sit there again. Then what's really happening? Like that's a massive amount of avoidance. So I feel like it's interesting what you said. And I think you're right. I think a lot of people are just hanging out like, well, this will just pass. This will pass. And then somebody will figure it out or, you know, the savior will come and figure it out. And it's like, no, it's us. Like we actually need to stop the madness, and do our work together to figure out solutions for the planet. So the uh, we're talking about needing to do <laughs> the work for yourself. One of the phrases that I coined to describe the problem with how religions create this spiritual bypassing, right, of, oh, I don't have to do anything because I believe, I believe. <laughs> Yeah. And I show up on Sunday, so it's okay for me. Or I do my Hail Marys or I whatever, you know. So I call that the Messiah. It's a Messiah (laughs) Psyop. The external savior. And I I, we can talk about like the value of the external savior mythos and what it's meant to lead you to. But I find it fascinating how the uh, ancient Gaulish people who are also you would call them like the ancient Celtic people. They are the same, basically, they had a version of Jesus or a savior, son, God named Jesus. Interesting. <laughs> so, when was that us. from? Jesus, he's us. You know what I mean? He's us. Wow. Yeah. So I think the idea of an external savior is fascinating whenever you apply that uh, to alchemy, which a lot of the religious mythological systems are also allegorical to alchemy in their pure state in a way that's helpful. You know, a good mythology should give you the ability to anagogically interpret it and learn something about different aspects of nature across dimensions of scale in a fractal sense. So your internal world experience, your (laughs) alchemy, the the way nature does things, a moral reading and astrology-based reading, all of those things should and are in the uh, pure versions of mythologies available in one package that allegorizes each of those aspects simultaneously. So in alchemy, there's a concept called mercury. Of course, mercury, the metal is mercury alchemically, but mercury is any solvent type agent. Mercury is anything that 
So like water can be mercury, which makes sense because myrrh is a word referring to water or the sea. Hence why we have Mary, the uh, mother of Jesus, Maya, mother of Buddha, Maya, mother of Hermes. Hermes is mercury, etc. So whenever you are doing the alchemical process to bring about the alchemical wedding of the masculine and feminine generative power, which is what gives you life. And, you know, we can talk about mythoses that cover that, but you have this agent called the mercury that is bringing one part from one side to the other side and the part from the other side back to the other side. So like bridge, it's the bridge, it's the middle, it's the heart. It's why Jesus, who is a mercury figure, is often shown with like a a sacred heart, right? We're both wearing green today, so. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Yes, we're in sync on that. So whenever you have this alchemical mercury, the most powerful finishing touch of the process would actually be to remove the solvent, remove the mercury. So like think of uh, tinctures whenever you're doing a plant extraction using like an alcohol-based tincture. Most people, and I'm not saying that the medicine is worthless, but most people will actually leave the solvent, which is alcohol, in the tincture because it's a preservative. And again, what is the Mercury figure? What is the Jesus figure? In terms of the Trinity, he's the preserver aspect of the Trinity. So (laughs) the beauty, though, in in looking at these symbol systems alchemically is that if you you know that the actual final step of the process would be to remove the solvent so that you just have the pure philosopher's stone, the wedded masculine and feminine generative power without the external savior or the mercury you look at that in your own life how maybe a a religious system gave you an external savior you believed in it it was a teacher you know you learned about how to be the best version of yourself through that external savior but then one day you wake up and realize you know what that's all mythology there's not literally a magical man (laughs) waiting up in the clouds who's going to come down here and fix everything for me i have to wwjd (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? I have to I do I have that. to do it myself. I have to do it. I have I have to make that external savior live internally inside me. And at which point you have crucified the savior. To crucify something is actually to remove it from what it's attached to. Yeah, so, and, but you're also forging your own heart in the fires. You're forging your heart, your sacred heart in the fire of that purging of the lie so to speak, you know, this sort of temporary Hmm. truth so that you become what you said you admired so much on the outside. You do it on the inside. You become that, that force of love on the inside. That's what we're, I think that's what we're here to do is to do it. Each experience, the doing of it ourselves in our own vessels. In our own vessels. Exactly. Yeah. Which I, I think that's so cool. And one way that you can know you're on the right track with looking at symbolism is when you're able to take away the supernatural element, the magical, fanciful, something that you never have seen with your own eyes and nobody you know has ever experienced because it's not what nature does in our everyday life. (laughs) You know, not that sometimes things don't happen that are unexplainable. Of course they do. But if you can find the interpretation of whatever you're looking at that points back to what the natural world does and what nature does, then you're really on the right track and then you're really learning something. So in terms of what it all boils down to at the end of the day <laughs> is that masculine generative 
power and feminine generative power coming together to create life. Because at the end of it all, what meaning to life is there that is grander than life begetting more life and life continuing eternally and perpetually? That's eternal life, you know? And I I like how you can see that in all the different... (laughs) Really where, where I think the best seed to interpret mythology through would be this idea of the Ark. I really like the the Ark story, the Argo in Greek, the Arga in the Hindu, in the Atrahasis of the Mesopotamian or Babylonian culture. You have over and over again, this story of the the boat and how it preserves the world through the creation or through the destruction and regeneration of all things. And that is a really cool symbol system because it's actually showing you exactly what I just said. You have the boat, which is got a hull or a hole <laughs> representing the, the feminine generative power. And then you have the mast, which is the lingam or the, the phallic or the masculine generative power. And then on the boat is the savior archetype who rides it to survive the destruction of the world. And then he comes off the boat and repopulates or replenishes the world. So in that sense, one of the elements of the preserver archetype that is consistent throughout all the versions is that one of the names of him is Eros, which is the erotic principle. You know, that's actually the sacred or divine spark. The divine spark is the force of attraction between mom and dad that leads you to create a new human being, which is the regeneration of the world or the earth of a new world. Because every time a new baby comes into the world, that's an entirely new world. You know, that individual is starting fresh and experiencing everything from the beginning (laughs) all the way to their end. So I think that that's uh, one aspect of how the religious institutions of the world have leveraged a way to not be helpful (laughs) to humanity, that the repression of that erotic force that is actually our our salvation, not saying that we need to like just be uh, sex addicts or anything like that, but to recognize that that moment of the conceiving of a new child or the fertilization of the, the egg in the womb is a microcosm of the macrocosm of how the world continues to exist. Yeah. I mean, I've actually been looking at that recently uh, with my groups and looking at the repression of the feminine by the patriarchal colonization of the planet, the patriarchal religious colonization, and the shaming of the feminine and the suppression of the sexuality and suppression of the the feminine wisdom that comes through the body, you know, so the disowning of the body even, like the disowning of the physical nature of a of a person, and especially women. And it's like really interesting to see how all of those things are disempowering. If you don't really know your own inner power and you don't connect with your your body, you're not going to know your inner power. So if you don't connect with your inner power, you're powerless in a way. And then you're dependent on these external systems in order to fulfill your needs, which is what they want. You know, they kind of want you to be they, whoever they is that set up these systems, kind of want people to be very dependent upon them. And I feel like the answer then is to heal the relationship with the body and to heal the relationship with the sexuality 
And to turn inside instead of going to the priest to ask for the answer or even to the guru, like, no, come inside, find the answer inside of yourself. And now you're living according to your unique blueprint. Because I do believe that we all have a unique blueprint. I think we're all going basically the same journey, but we're taking different paths. And those paths are meant for us. And so I can't follow your path because that wouldn't do anything for me. And you can't follow mine because it wouldn't lead you where you need to go. We all have these different unique expressions, as you said, that come out in the individual story, the sort of mythology. What I love about what you're saying is that um, one of the realizations I came to about my personal healing was that it came when I decided, number one, I was going to stop asking external experts. I was going to go inside, like I'm leaving the external medicine and I'm building the inner medicine. And then the second thing was, is this piece of wisdom that I got from one of my first teachers, Alberto Vialdo, who said that it's really about the mythology. It's I about, like that guy. You know that guy? I love, yeah, he's my one of my teachers. That's when, awesome. When it's, when it's the story we tell about ourselves that actually matters. And when we are in a disempowered state and the story we're telling is based on some diagnosis or label or something like that, it's sort of like a dead end. You know, like there's, you're just like broken the rest of your life and you're screwed and here you can cope, here's a pill. That story doesn't really have any legs. So what we want to do is open the book of destiny and go, oh, I can, I can co-create my heroes, my heroine's journey. You know, that's, and the heroine's journey, what is, is the hero's journey is going to look this pretty much the same as everybody else's in the basic stages, but it's going to have unique details. And that's why we do these podcasts, right? I mean, that's how we all got into doing this podcast is to hear everybody else's stories about how they arrived at the same basic conclusions we did. <laughs> <laughs> It's cool that you know Alberto. I read a book by him that I love, Shaman Healer Sage. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. Great book. And then I found a, a tarot deck that, not a tarot deck, but like a, an oracle deck that the he was shaman. involved with creating. I love it. It's oh, super it's helpful. A, Mystical Shaman is the best deck, everybody. Of course, I'm going to be working on my deck, so just wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I usually pull out at least a couple of cards from that Mystic Shaman deck when I do reads for people, which I do that sometimes. Um, he has it steeped in medicine. It's steeped in the medicine of his, of what he teaches. It's really powerful. It's really good. And then speaking of divination, you know, what you were saying about the repression of the feminine is, is kind of funny because the <laughs> male priests of the ancient world, and I think this still goes on, always had like an obs obsession with the feminine. In the sense that they were dressing like women, they were cutting off their male parts, they were doing everything they could to be as female as possible. And even looking at today's modern, uh, <laughs> I hope this doesn't trigger anybody, but the Vatican, the, the Vatican has for many generations been synonymous with the closet. And to the point where it's not, it's an open secret now, but, you know, longer ago, if you had a, a very effeminate son, you would probably send him into the priesthood. And in the same way, it actually kind of goes both ways. So like an example would be in the poetic Edda, the Edda, which by the way, if you just drop the aspirate of the V or the B, you have in the word Edda, you have Veda. It's the Veda <laughs> uh. or Buddha. Because <laughs> uh -huh. V and B are interchangeable between many different languages. So in the first book of the Poetic Edda, it's called the Voluspa, which again, if you do that V to B, the Vol becomes Bol, which is an ancient name of the sun. Bel, Bol, Baal, 
word that in a lot of languages means Lord. But the the Voluspa describes a what I would call a yoni cult, especially because the seer that Odin speaks to in the Voluspa, they call her the Volva. <laughs> Oh, well, that's <laughs> Her name is Volver. <laughs> <laughs> and the Volar or the Volver or the Volva, these are seers in a, a feminine priestesses that, and I think that word actually, Volar, is probably where we get the word Valor, like Valorous heroes. But the word Volva in the ancient Norse actually refers to, in a direct, their meaning of the word, it was referring to a carrier of the rod or the staff. And the rod or the staff, obviously, you know, maybe not only this, but it's definitely a phallic symbol. So you have these, <laughs> you know, back, well, Odin actually has to dress like a woman to get some of the the vulva powers, right? But the vulva pri- priestesses and, and seers, diviners, uh, they were carrying the masculine implement. So <laughs> there's always been this element of like, symbolically, you have to whatever gender you are, that you have to be able to tap into the, on the inside, how you have both polarities, right? And that's been, a, always been an aspect toward, like it's again, alchemy, the, the chemical wedding. I'm not saying that men should become women or women should become men or especially not mutilate themselves to do so, but there is an element of, you need to recognize like in the Jungian sense, you have, you have a, a spirit that's got both elements to it. Otherwise you wouldn't exist. So I have more I can say about yeah, that. Yeah, no, that is continue. actually... That's really interesting. I actually um, have come across a lot of people, because I'm very open about this kind of thing, that are in one body but feeling like the opposite gender. And that's a really uncomfortable experience to be inside, let's say, a female body, but feel really like a man the whole time from when you're little and just go, I don't belong in this body. <laughs> you know. And so that, that made me start thinking like, wow. I don't, I don't like that interpretation of it just because... Why would nature make you <laughs> what gender you are? It, like That's like saying God made a mistake. Now, obviously, people can express whatever masculine or feminine qualities they want. It, it, harming no one else is no problem. But I don't like how society has made it so trendy to have this gender dysphoria, which leads a lot of people to very depressed places. But anyway, continue. Yeah, I mean, I... I... I think that I'm very at home being in my body. So for me, I don't experience that. So what, I, what I'm curious about is when somebody is experiencing that, it's like, wow, that's really uncomfortable to like be in one body, but not really feel like that gender. That's an uncomfortable situation. And I started looking into it, like what is going on with that? And what I came to was that, you know, sometimes as souls, because we're reincarnating all the time, that sometimes maybe we have a lot of lifetimes in, as one gender and then we flip over to try the other gender and all it's brand new now, but we, it doesn't feel right because it's our first time. You know, it's like, I wouldn't feel right if it was my first time, I would feel strange. And so I think that's kind of what's happening is that, you know, we have a lot of people incarnating and trying new, uh, maybe the opposite sex. And then it feels strange at first. So I, I wonder how much of that is self-acceptance, but I also wonder if the journey of self-acceptance is to be the creator of your own vessel and, and to make it match how you feel on the inside. Cause we're talking about inner medicine. You know, I mean, a lot of this journey is your inner version, your inner journey with yourself and to come to self-acceptance with you on the inside, which might not match you on the outside, you know? So, I mean, there is a lot of questions and I think a lot of people are in this conversation right now, just look out in the media and you can see, or in certain communities, you can see there's a lot of 
exploration of this right now. And I think it's interesting what people are finding out. I'm grateful that I'm at home in my body. Like I'm grateful that I landed in a body that I'm comfortable with because that makes life a little easier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think it's a journey of, you know, being com- at home in your body or comfortable in your body is step one. And you go further and you learn that, oh my gosh, my body actually knows everything. <laughs> everything. <laughs> you know, in my practice with our a technician work I do, I'm really more just like a translator that talks to the ego self of the other person about what my body and their body are talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, fascinating. It, and you know, what's interesting about the body is that it also includes the mind, right? And some people are more versed in their mind than in their body. Like, for example, there's different, I don't know if you ever run across the uh, the Michael teachings, but there's like a system of identification with the Michael teachings where there are seven types, basic types of people. And you, you're you going to be one of those people with like some supplementary casting. But the types would be like, I think you're a scholar. So scholar is one, like you're incessantly always researching things. And like, you really like, that's just like your passion. Like you just know a lot of stuff. The scholars know a lot. Of yeah. Stuff. There's a lot of systems that reflect that, like numerology, yeah. numerology, my date of birth and like whether you include the year or just the month and day comes out to seven. My name adds up to seven, seven. Oh, so you're the, seven. And in the Enneagram, I'm, I've, I land as a seven. <laughs> Seven is that exact thing you're talking about, sort of the the scholar seeker type. And, you know, we're talking about the, the whole sort of tapping into the other gender within yourself. Well, the guru scholar daddy of them all in astrology would be Jupiter, right? <laughs> Jupiter rules the sign of Sagittarius. And if you look at how Sagittarius is outlined in the sky, Sagittarius is wearing a dress which is interesting too, because Jupiter, uh, this isn't really well known in in modern renditions of mythology and all that, but Zeus slash Jupiter is actually frequently described as a man and a maid, that all things were created in the womb of Jupiter. This is stemming back to the more original versions of mythology where whoever the top G is, is androgynous. You have like this where we get the word hermaphrodite. It's referring to Hermes Aphrodite which is Aphrodite with a beard, right? You see this in a lot of symbolism. And, you know, another fascinating thing about Jupiter too is in the Hindu naming of that particular deity or planet, they call him Bris Potter. Bris Potter, Bris Potter. Potter means father. It's the same as the word in Latin, patere. It's uh, P, and, P and F interchange. And T can sound like T or D, like D or TH, like the, so Potter gives you father, 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 you know, Potter. Uh, I think I already said that one, but Sagittarius has, in some versions of how that constellation is drawn, Sagittarius is holding a teapot, which is interesting, or an oil lamp, an anointing oil lamp. So anyway, this word Brees Potter, fascinatingly enough, uh, they also call him guru in in uh, Sanskrit. A Brees is the ceremony that the Abrahamic religions used to clip the phallus of the baby, which actually does have a quite a effect on their expression of sexuality in a sort of repressive way, in a non-healthy way, in my opinion. So anyway. That is powerful. You know, what this is getting at is God or man or a woman. 
<laughs> beyond. Well, the ancients would have said mm-hmm. beyond genders or both genders. Both the genders, same, Kind right? of the same thing. Because think about mother. Like the whole idea of mother. Like I've been really connecting with great mother, with mother earth, with the divine mother. And to me, I'm a mother. So I'm like, mother is female. You know, mother has a womb. Mother is uh, creating all of life. I mean, mother is the one that has girl kids and boy kids like mothers birth both genders right like mothers are equal opportunity but it's like that would mean the creator was fam- was a feminine mother but then i heard somewhere along the lines and i can't remember where i saw this that somebody was saying that mother is father and i was like that is strange to me as a mother that's strange right cuz i mean Women have wombs that they actually grow babies when they get big. You know, I had one of those. Well, there is a pregnant man emoji now. Where's that? Oh, uh, on my emoji keyboard on my iPhone, there is a pregnant man emoji. So it must be possible. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe that's technology. Maybe technology is speaking for itself. (laughs) Well, this is why my favorite version of the mythos comes back to the boat, the ark. Uh, Ark is a cool word because it means wisdom. Uh, Arche in Greek means wisdom. It means head, means the top. And it's where we get like the idea of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and again, in a lot of versions of mythology, words play off of that. So wisdom, head, uh, Jupiter has Minerva or Athena born out of his head. And she's the goddess of wisdom, right? And so Arga this word referring to the ark, an alternate version of it would be actually Eartha. So the microcosm story is the world age doctrine where the flood comes and <laughs> the world is regenerated after it's destroyed by the flood and the savior rides on the boat, the boat being the male principle and a female principle put together, the mother, father, right? And and there's so many elements of this, but where to go with it, the earth is the macrocosm of that because no matter what happens, the earth actually holds on to the information of all of the creatures in the form of DNA literally living in the soil or the soul of it. That's something I've covered on my podcast before, how the earth itself, soil itself can, in the right conditions, spontaneously generate life forms. Someone can actually do this experiment for themselves that if you get some compostable material, you heat it up thermophilic microorganisms will appear in the compost and they were not there before. So uh, there's many different elements of, of microorganisms that are pleomorphic, I think is the word, meaning they can actually change from one thing into another, which is also fascinating. But suffice to say, on the other side of that whole thing I was talking about with like a utopia around the corner, out of the other side of their mouth, they're telling you the world's about to end. The world's about to end. You're, you're the bad one. You're, too much carbon, you're making the world die, you know, <laughs> when in fact, I think the entire idea of extinction as it's presented to us in a sort of tisk tisk scolding us type of way is I believe that that's fallacious because of the fact that the, I think it's more like a frequency, honestly, that as humanity's fear levels increase, their bandwidth of perception reduces and the amount of possibilities that they experience in the world is also reduced. But in truth, the whole spectrum of all reality has never gone anywhere. <laughs> it's just that we've narrowed our perception of it. I mean, for reality to be reality or whatever word you want to use that's synonymous, it has to always be. 
it exists. Existence exists. So everything that exists always exists and never ceases to exist. It's really just well, our- It might change forms. It might change forms, you know. But I like what you're saying. What I heard when you were saying that is that, and this is what has always come to me, that's why the solution is waking up. Because when you wake up, you realize you're eternal, you're a timeless soul. When you realize that, you kind of, the heart opens, you relax a little. And when your nervous system calms down, a billion solutions come to your mind about what to do to solve a problem, you know, like the oceans or whatever's going on. You know, you want to protect the whales. Okay, well, there's a billion solutions for that. So they'll come out when you're open-minded and when you're relaxed and when you're trusting and when your heart's open and when you're generous. It's like millions of solutions can come out, you know, about how to do that. But we have to get out of this, like you said, this like myopic fear-based tunnel but it is for the survival of humanity that we do need to open up our hearts and relax. We actually do need to come and ascend our consciousness to a higher place if we're going to survive. Otherwise, we'll just kind of spiral down into this little closing tube of fear, right? Like it just kind of narrows and constricts down to nothing. And then some other new life will, will come up instead of us. But yeah, I think that's, um, that's what do you get when, when I say that to you? <laughs> I, I pretty much I pretty much agree. I mean, what I just like to help people with is if they want they can take it or leave it, but I I don't think that there's any reason to be afraid for even the survival of humanity. I don't think that we're going to destroy the earth or that that's even possible. <laughs> like that's like <laughs> We might destroy ourselves, I mean, but yeah. Well, on the individual level, <laughs> like some of us might have a shortened lifespan because of of behavior that doesn't support our continued existence here. You know, and that's actually how I interpret the idea of sin is sin is anything that makes you weaker in the sense that whenever you behave in a way outside of how nature ordained things to operate, you will receive the wrath of God. <laughs> and it's nothing, it's not even like a judgment of, of, of your character or anything. It's just sort of a, uh, sort of a cause and effect, right? If you do something outside of the way nature would do it, Depending on how aberrant that is, you will receive the effect of your health will be diminished. So, but I also, I don't think that, I think it's a very big manipulation tactic of, you know, would-be controllers and, and slave masters to convince you that you're bad, you're dirty, your carbon is uh, <laughs> is leaving too big of a footprint, you know, your farts are destroying the atmosphere, yada, 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 all of that. I think that it's a big fear hurdle for people to let go of that they, they can let go of that. Okay. What would life be like if I could just breathe a sigh of relief and relax and think, Oh, actually we're not going to run out of gas in two years or the climate isn't going to collapse and all life is going to end. What if we just removed that just as a thought experiment, what if we just removed that entire notion and replaced it with how well I'm aligned with nature determines how long I get to be here and the quality of me being here. And there's nothing else I'm responsible for or guilty of outside of that. <laughs> you know, I think well, that, that like takes a lot print. of the pressure off. I yeah. think there's a lot of pressure put on people about climate crisis and this and that. And while it is true that humans can have an effect on the environment and the earth is huge, the environment is self-correcting. Nature, what we call nature is the ordering and organizing principle the creative dynamic intelligence uh, that spirit or life force energy innately expresses. So in that sense, I don't think that it even takes that long for nature 
to bounce back from any kind of imprint that humanity leaves on it. I'm not saying to be like littering and <laughs> dumping toxic chemicals in your backyard. You will receive punishment for that in the form of if you make your own environment toxic, there will be repercussions for for you and the people around you. Sure. But I do. I personally have let go of sort of the guilt trip that my lifestyle is destroying the earth and I'm the bad man and all of that. And I, I would encourage other people to do the same because that guilt is a big blockage in your ability to create. It destroys your self-worth to have that type of guilt, or at least diminishes your self-worth. It is actually, the irony of it is people are saying at the two things at the same time. They're saying, we want to create a world of abundance and we want to stop being the bad guys who are destroying the planet. But the, the latter thing is actually what is the block on your abundance? If you believe that you're guilty in any way, or if you're ashamed of yourself and holding on to guilt and shame, it's the exact mechanism that is the opposite of satisfaction. And satisfaction is the thing required for generating abundance. The frequency of abundance energetically, the feeling in your body that will actually magnetize the experience externally of abundance is satisfaction. And in so many ways, our current culture has flipped that script in a kind of self-deceptive and manipulative way. Like we're taught, jump in the rat race, do a bunch of stuff that you hate, sell yourself for money and not even that much. And <laughs> if you stay hungry and just keep that hunger for more and more and more, then you will eventually have enough equity to experience abundance. But the opposite is true. The energy internally of hunger and lack is what brings you more lack. <laughs> it brings you more barely making it. The feeling of satisfaction is what generates abundance. So that's why, like, and guilt is on that same frequency level. Uh, it's all in the sacral chakra region, that orange color. And, you know, I work with this with clients all the time, you know, as an example, here's an example of how that plays out too, and how dr dramatic and dire it can be. So I had a I had a recent client where they were wanting to work on a lipoma that they had on their back. And as soon as I put forks in it <laughs> into the energy field, this is remotely, by the way, I found that right at the beginning of their life, uh, like as a in the womb, it was that early in their biofield, they were experiencing this feeling of betrayal. And I probed into it more and I was like, okay, here's what I think is going on. I think that your mom and dad were way young when they got pregnant with you. They were scared and hesitant or like just flat out reluctant and didn't want a baby because they didn't think they were ready. And the client was like, yeah, actually, <laughs> they were. They were 17 when they got pregnant. They were super scared and they didn't want a baby and yada, yada. So this was basically like creating the expectation for this individual of being betrayed by people that they love and that they're close to. Because at the very beginning of life, they were metaphorically betrayed by their parents, right? And then the story gets crazier, but they ended up having, and I won't go into the details because they're a little like gnarly, but they ended up having several experiences throughout their life of being betrayed by people they were close to for money. And so it's no surprise that they developed this lipoma, which is a, a, a big, almost nearly tumorous type of fat deposit on their lower back in the sacral chakra region, because it's like a plate of armor the body is putting there to defend itself against being stabbed in the back, which is what they had felt like wow. was happening over and over again. So this is an example of how 
you know, because the energy that the parents were bringing to the equation at the simplest level with their reluctance to generate this new life, which is a sacral chakra thing, was they were frustrated. They resented the responsibility. They resented each other. Uh, the mom and dad did. And that whole feeling of resentment or however you want to describe it, <laughs> frustration is the exact frequency of lack and hunger and not being satisfied. And why I illustrated that whole story out is because I want to demonstrate the extreme ramifications in life experiences that come about from having this expectation about yourself and about the world revolving around being guilty in some way or being frustrated by, you know, and that's a lot of the people that preach the whole climate crisis stuff. The energy behind it is, I'm very frustrated with all of you. You're, I'm very frustrated with all of you, you know? And so that is the poison that, cre that creates lack and, and prevents us from experiencing abundance in a full level. I have tons of stories with clients where that ended up being the answer for them as the, and in terms of how someone out there listening can flip that script around if they're suffering from it in some way would be, you know, maybe you're already doing it, but the simplest answer is actually gratitude practices regularly, especially around food. <laughs> in my opinion, if you get really into the pre-meal gratitude practice to the point where you actually feel the sensation of gratitude, which is the same feeling of satisfaction before you say the words, just as soon as the meal shows up in front of you or you you know, you, you sit down to eat, you feel it in your body. That's how you know that you've crossed over the threshold of really embodying the, the energy needed for abundance. If it's no longer empty words or just sort of an intellectual gratitude, but you now feel it, you physically feel it. And then that's how you know your sacral chakra. You'll like feel good in your body. And that's how you know your sacral chakra is fired up. And that leads you a long way towards experiencing higher degrees of self-worth and receiving more. And you also have to be open to receive more <laughs> than you need. Abundance actually means that you have a surplus, but that, you know, and then you have to let go of other elements of guilt or shame so that you can trust yourself with a surplus. And that's another thing that people maybe have a problem with is they're like, oh, if I have more than someone else has, or if I have more than I need uh, because of all this poverty and climate crisis and things like that, that makes me guilty. I'm the bad one. Rich people are bad. All of that type of mentality, <laughs> people with money, they suck. All that stuff that gets programmed in and seeded in to the mind, uh, you got to let that go too. Because if you want to experience abundance, what that means is you're actually going to have a surplus. And if you can trust yourself with a surplus that, yeah, that you pass it on in the form of like, just hoard your gold, so to speak, that's great. Uh, part of the whole thing is also if you want it to flow to you, it needs to be able to flow through you. And that, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll stop I'll stop ranting Actually, on that. <laughs> everything you've been talking about is really, from my perspective, about being aligned with Mother Earth. And that's, it's like when you're in harmony with Earth, then you're prosperous. When you're in harmony with Earth, you're not afraid of the inflow and the outflow. When you're in harmony with Earth, reciprocity is a natural exchange. It's just like the trees... The trees generate the oxygen we breathe, and then we breathe it, and then we breathe out, and then they get, you know, we're, we're sharing that what they need, right? Our carbon dioxide or whatever. So the, we're always doing this reciprocity thing. It's happen. It's a natural part of life, right? And the idea that we had to hoard things was be based on fear, was based on scarcity, was based on this whole structure of hierarchical, you know, people have this and I don't have any. 
and we're moving out of that, you know? So when I, when I look at like, what does new earth look like? Like, what does that even look like? I think it looks like us just being in harmony with her natural principles, you know, and operating in that way. And so being grounded, being present, being, you know, in harmony with nature and with our bodies and being present with all of that. And then the natural ebbs and flows. And then that is part of we, we consciousness. That's not me consciousness anymore. That's we, right? When we're in we consciousness, everything works out because it's all about us. You know, and it actually, in my opinion, just collapses the the differential between the we, me consciousness can collapse into the all is self, which is everything the, the experience of wholeness. And again, wholeness, which we should be seeking to constantly feel and embody is the same feeling as satisfaction. Funny thing about we and me also is that between Latin and Sanskrit uh, and, uh, and some other languages too, like just philologically, a fun trick that you can do to see if there's deeper meaning to a word is flip the W's into M's or the M's into W's. And like, think about the element of air in symbolism representing thought, right? And communication and speech and the mind. Well, mind, flip the M, wind. <laughs> oh, that's cool. We flip the M uh, or flip the W, me or mater, which is mother or matter. Flip the M, water. And it goes on. That's very <laughs> like, cool. I mean, that explains the river of life and. Exactly. It's exactly. So like, that's a fun thing to do is fl flip the M to the W. That's where philology gets uh, exciting is if you know what types of letters shift from one uh, from like commonly shift, like L's and R's are interchangeable as an example, P and B is frequently interchangeable. And this is like the logos, in my opinion, whenever you start to see beyond the dictionary, diction of Aries, definitions, definitions, <laughs> thinking poetically and creatively about the language rather than just getting caught up in what the in maybe overtly intended meaning or definition is of the word. You know, that's activating both left and right brain at the same time, rather than just being in sort of a left-brained reductionist mechanistic type of communication. You can expand beyond that and start to get into you know, like I did with vol and bowl, you know, you can play with words like that poetically. And then that's where the intelligent, omnipotent, creative, animating spirit of, of life starts to speak through our creation, which is our creation being words. But, you know, I actually have been kicking around an idea that that language maybe was seeded in us, that there is sort of a, a prototype or almost like biologically instinctual aspect of language and like ma meaning mother everywhere all the time. <laughs> and I think like my current working theory that I don't think is really provable because it's too far back in the mists of ancient history, but my current working theory is that maybe letters came from leaves as in the different leaf shapes of different leaves were the original letters that were laid out to do the original type of spelling. And one of the reasons I think that is because if you go into the ancient Irish or Celtic alphabet, the ancient Greek alphabet, the Phoenician alphabet, many, many others that are some of the oldest that we can find, the letters, first of all, they all have the same 16 letters in the same order. <laughs> so that tells you something. 
But then secondly, they all represent trees. Each of the letters represents a tree or is named after a tree, which is fun because various tree symbolism is always so constant with whatever the savior deity happens to be, whether he's uh, Jesus or Bacchus or Mercury. Uh, they call him the word of God. They call him the logos. They call him the God of eloquence. The uh, The ancient Celts had a version of Hercules called Agmios, who had, which is probably where the word Agam, the sort of cryptic cipher, ancient Irish uh, type of writing comes from, which is like lines carved onto sticks. You know, it's very similar to Roman numerals. Well, I, 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 one, two, three, et cetera. Anyway, Agmios had, was depicted with golden chains coming from his mouth to the ears of his followers, <laughs> God of eloquence. And these are all variations of the uh of Bacchus or Dionysus you know he was a lord of wine and revelry and Jesus turns water into wine <laughs> a very similar character and they call this old version you know Bacchus or Dionysus Liber Pater which is Liber is a word that means free and it's a word that means book but it's also bark like bark of a tree oddly enough a bark is a word for a ship or a boat <laughs> <laughs> and so it goes on and you start to see how all the, like through the language, all these things that seem separate are kind of morphing, morphation, morphations of <laughs> the one thing, which I find so fun to explore. You know, the further, the deeper you go into language and philology, the more you see that like everything is everything. <laughs> everything is everything. <laughs> you know, it's, it's fun. It's a fun way to, look at the world and it helps even more if you're able to uh you know knowing that everything is everything realize that you know that means that the external experience of life you can interpret just like a, a dream interpreter would or a div divination would do and realize that there is a message in everything whether it's in the the pain in your left knee or the frustrating experience you have in the external world that if you can start to interpret everything that previously you thought was happening to you and instead see that you're happening to the world and that that happening is your inner self trying to speak to your conscious ego self, <laughs> that there are no accidents. There's no body just going wrong and something something just broke. But actually, you know, like with the lipoma I mentioned with a client earlier, that that was a form of armoring because he felt afraid of being stabbed in the back. And everything the body does, it's just completely intelligent and wise. It never does anything uh, other than communicate with you. That means that even dis-ease or maladies or dissonance you feel in the body isn't even bad. It's something that is trying to signal you. And if you get the memo, then it doesn't have to do such drastic bonks over the head. And you can start to get a little more gentle communication with the body because you're no longer <laughs> deaf to the message or ignoring the message. Yeah, that more gentle communication with the body, with the planet, with each other. Yeah, more harmonious, more accepting, more grateful. I love all that. Wow, that was beautiful. And I know that you said before the broadcast that you you're having a lot of those this conversation about the words, the language. You you're having a lot of these on your podcast. So I'll send people over to you to check out more of those. And of course, I'll be over with you real soon. Is there anything else? Because I know you have a community too that people can join your community, right? And they get like kind of backstage passes and information 
like additional resources. Is that still happening? Yeah, sort of. I mean, there's various ways to interact with what I what I'm putting out there. The community shows up to live streams on my YouTube or Rockfin channels. And we have a Telegram group that is incredible where people come and, you know, exchange ideas and good vibes and connect with each other. I've basically just replaced Google searches with talking to my Telegram group. Because, <laughs> you know, you may have noticed out there, but the uh, the ability to look things up on the internet that's at all useful has pretty much gone away. You know, at this point, Google is great if you know the name of the business you're looking for or the exact name of something that you want to pull up. But in terms of searching for information and answers to questions that you don't know the answer for, you're going to get whoever paid the most for the ad slot. <laughs> The, the the internet as, as it used to be is actually pretty dead. It's so interesting. But like you think that Google's given you millions of search results, but if you go down and start paging through, you can't even get past about page 20 on any particular search, even though there should be way more out there. So there's been a lot of under the hood tinkering done to the internet to make it difficult to get non-sanctioned information, information that goes against the sort of corporate hierarchical governmental, medical mafia-style narratives that are being spun, which means it's all the more important to have community that you can interact with and interface with directly. So like my Telegram group, as an example, last year I had my uh, my dog and I both got some seed ticks or what people call chiggers in the South. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and I was I like, like, how them. do I deal with this? And I Googled it and Google's like, you know, just put poison on yourself and put poison on the dog. If you put poison on it, that'll make everything better. And I couldn't find any better information than that from the Google search. And then I asked my group and I had master herbalists and medicine people giving me very simple and easy solutions on how I could take action to help out my dog and my, my own legs to get the seed ticks out. And it worked. You know, I got the answer. I got the solution. So way better to have a human search engine than a corporate controlled search engine. And so that's one of the big benefits of having community like that. Uh, people can subscribe to my Patreon or my Rockfin page. And there are there's bonus content on my episodes that you can only get through supporting that way. People can hit me up. My email is chance at interversepodcast.com. And if you uh, want more information about the sound therapy I do for people, I, I'll send that to you or you can find it on my website been just really loving connecting with clients on that and getting way, way more experienced than the last time we talked about it. But if people are curious a little more about the method itself, they can either find that on my channels or on my website or go back to the Soul Nectar episode from the last time I was on. Yeah, that was a really good episode. I, I probably explained it pretty well back then. Yeah, you did. It was a really good episode. I'll actually put links to both of the previous episodes uh, in this one so you guys can come and check it out. And I'm just so grateful that we had this time to connect with each other. And gosh, always an interesting conversation. I'm kind of like, what am I going to call this episode? But I think I'm going <laughs> to, I'll think about it. But it's, it was mostly on the topic of spirituality and the source of spirituality and the feminine, the masculine, the balance and the wholeness and the harmonizing and being part of, you know, aligned with earth. So I think that was, I think that's what it is. So I'll put that out there, you guys. Thanks for tuning in and staying all the way to the end. And share it out, please. Share it out. Like, subscribe, all the good stuff. Share it with more people. Like Chance said, you know, people might not find this if you don't share it. So, you know, share it out with somebody. Send it to them and say, hey, check this out. This was cool. I really enjoyed it. 
Yeah, I like to ask people, you know, rather than posting it on Facebook or something where it just gets buried, I would rather that somebody think of one friend, even if just one friend that they know would actually like this and send it to them and tell them why you think they would like it. I think that's more effective and personal than sort of mass sharing at this point. Yeah, I think so too. And you can use the messenger function too to share things uh, directly with somebody, which also bypasses some of these uh, limitations placed on. I gave up on Facebook because uh, I want to. I have a life sentence on Facebook jail. So it's pointless. Yeah. (laughs) I don't even know what I did, but like it'll be, you'll have like a 90 day ban of can't post and for, you know, for something. And then uh, as soon as that rolls up, like the time is up then Facebook would be like, oh, this post from four years ago, you're in Facebook jail because of this post from four years ago. So somebody or something out there is just like waiting for my sentence to come up and then re-banning me. Completely so I, banning you right away. I just quit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just gave up oh, on that's that. that's frustrating. Yeah, so you guys should know that. And that's why it's important to watch, po- to listen to podcasts because we skirt around the system and then you find me and then you find Chance and then Chance somebody else. And so it's a little daisy chain. <laughs> so <laughs> welcome to our daisy chain. Yeah, that's uh, way more organic. Yeah. It's more organic indeed. Exactly. All right, everybody. Thank you so much, Chance. It was a great conversation. I loved everything you shared. I'm going to have to go back and listen to this one again. And uh, for everybody out there, thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next week. And here come the kisses. If you want to join me, Chance, we're going to give kisses. Mwah. Mwah. We love you. And we'll see you next time on Soul Nectar Show. Bye for now, everyone. If you found even one gold nugget in this episode of Soul Nectar Show, will you do us a favor? Will you subscribe? like, and share this episode? Maybe even write a comment and let us know what you thought about it. We really, really want to engage with you at a much deeper level. Let's be part of community together. Have a great week, everyone. Bye for now. To dive in deeper to nourishing conversation, visit soulnectar.show. Take a sip from the drip of the nectar From the source of who you are